0: Dear Yahweh, we just thank you for another night of coming together, another night of coming to your word. We just praise you and thank you for every moment that we have this. And so many people in the world don't have such easy access to this kind of stuff and this kind of access to teachings and that we just even live in a in a period where we have just so many more tools at our fingertips to understand your word than ever before in the history of mankind. And we thank you for that. And I pray that you just open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the deeper meanings and the truths and the themes of what you have to say in this book, and that once again it would transform us and our understanding of who you are, of how we can know you, and the way that you want to use us in expanding your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of Ruth. Ruth is... The Shining Light and the Darkness of Judges. Mm-hmm. So it is a very beautiful book. The title of Ruth comes from one of the most emphasized characters in the story. There's three dominant characters, Naomi, the mother-in-law, Ruth, the daughter, and Boaz, the kinsman-redeemer. It's named after Ruth, who becomes the primary focus that moves the narrative along more than any other character. However, what's interesting is that Ruth actually is not the main character of the book. It's one of those weird things where she is the most talked about person, but she is not the main character. The main character is Naomi, and everything centers around Naomi. Even though she's not the most active, everything is focused on her. It begins with her and her husband leaving the land. It begins with her family dying off. And the story begins with no descendants. And the primary main idea of the entire book is providing a descendant for Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. That is the main point of the book. It's it's not a romance story. It's not really about how Ruth became a part of the, the Abrahamic people. It's about how God preserved and saved the line of Elimelech using everyday normal people who just were faithful to be obedient to him. And in a book of genealogies, hopefully by now you realize that descendants and lines are incredibly important to God. (laughs) And this is what this book is primarily about. So the main idea is providing a descendant for Naomi and Elimelech and her dead husband Elimelech. (laughs) And so she is actually the main character. The book opens with her and the book closes with her as the main focus here. So this is where we get the, the book of Ruth in the title. Because Ruth is the one who saves the line, but it's primarily about Naomi and her husband. The setting is the time period of the judges. Verse 1-1 says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine. And so we just came out of judges. So basically Israel under Joshua entered into the promised land. And in 14 years of conquest, they took the promised land, but not all of it. God told them to stop so the next generation would have something to do. And that enters into the book of Judges. The book of Judges, they fail completely to take the rest of the land. And what we see is a spiraling down of two pretty good leaders, deliverers, Othniel and Ehud, and then a whole bunch of really scummy, crappy (coughs) Judges that just keep spiraling down, down, and down, down. And the book of Judges ends with basically a very, very, very dark time period where everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. Women are being completely mistreated. And one wonders if there's really any hope for this nation in any kind of a way. And no matter how much you think America is crappy and fallen, we are nowhere even close to what was the Judges in that time period. This book begins within the time period of the judges. And what's interesting is that in the midst of this dark, dark time period where the judges are acting the way that they are, where the priests are acting the way that they are and treating their wives like the way that they did, and the people are nationally approving of horrific crimes and it's not even bothering them, here's three people in a village that are still being godly they're so godly and they're so faithful that it basically presents two kind of major ideas. The first question that I always have is like, why didn't they make it into the book of Judges? Why in the world did Boaz never become a judge? Like, what was God doing? I mean, God has his purpose and his plans, and he chooses not to reveal any of that. And maybe Boaz was a judge in some kind of way. And that didn't fit the main idea of what God was trying to develop in the book of Judges. God wasn't interested in the exceptional leaders. He was interested in the massive norm of how the leaders were going downhill. But either way, he doesn't end up there in any kind of a way. But at the same time, what is amazing about this book is it shows that even when the entire culture is immoral and seems completely hopeless, and it might even feel like the end of the world, it is still possible for people to live a godly and faithful life. And and what this book really emphasizes to me is that we have no excuse to say, you don't know what neighborhood I grew up in, or you don't understand the culture that I came from, or everybody's doing it, or I'm the only person who gets that this is wrong. I'm the only person who's trying to be righteous still in my company. Like, this is way too hard. This is not worth it. Those aren't excuses. Because God is making it very clear that this is a dark time period. It's a very dark time period, especially for two women without husbands on their own. And you get in the midst of it, they are faithful. Their culture is not an excuse. It's not a reason to give up. It's not a reason to become hopeless. It's not a reason to compromise. And God protects them, preserves them, and uses them to bless other people. And I think the book of Ruth is not only an incredible testimony to God using incredible men and women of faith together, but also a testament of what it means to still be godly when your culture is jacked up. And so if they can be godly in that culture, then we can certainly be godly in this culture. And that that for me is one of the big things that I kind of take away from this story is just be aware As we read how incredible they are, always keep in the back of your mind the last couple chapters of Judges. And that's happening at the same time as this. And yet here they are, a light and absolute zero darkness still shining brightly. The book of Ruth is divided into four acts. And what is very interesting about this book is this is probably the only book in the entire Bible where the chapters actually make sense. The chapter divisions. Act 1 is chapter 1. Act 2 is chapter 2. Act 3 is chapter... There is a joke, you know, that whoever like put the chapters and verses in the Bible was some medieval Catholic priest or whatever who was on the road on his horse going from one village to another village and every time he hit a bump in the road he put another verse in the Bible as he was reading it because there is like no rhyme or reason in fact are some gross violations of narrative structure where a lot of these chapters and verses are located and yet the book of Ruth I don't know if he got lucky or he actually woke up on that road part of the, that part of the trip but he hit it right <coughs> so Each chapter is an act and it focuses on a major idea and then each act has three scenes and so it's three, 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 three and the scenes are marked by a location change so you basically have three locations in the first act, three locations in the second and this is how the book is structured and we'll follow that as we go along. The purpose of the book of Ruth is to show that Yahweh cares for needy people like Naomi and Ruth. It really emphasizes that he is their ally, even in the midst of death, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of rejection and abandonment. And the book of Ruth really highlights how much God really does care about the needy. And we see this in many places in the Bible the story of Tamar as a Canaanite who desperately wants to be a part of the, the tribe of Judah in Genesis 38. you got Hagar in chapter 14 who desperately wants to... He, she's cast out in the middle of the wilderness and God shows up and takes care of her even though she's the Egyptian who's not godly. We see this with the Shunammite widow when Elijah is sent to her and the other one when Elisha is sent to her. There's tons of examples. A woman at the well, the woman called an adultery, There's tons of stories where it is so obvious that God cares about the needy and what the culture deems as insignificant people. Yet this book is primarily focused on that. I feel like Ruth is the narrative for the prophets because there's two things that the prophets really emphasize more than anything, and that's Israel's idolatry, their lack of love for God, and their social injustice their lack of taking care of the poor and the the suffering and the oppressed and all that kind of stuff. And, And the fact that God spends so many books driving home, how much he abhors people not valuing the needy or the downtrodden really emphasizes how much God's heart goes out to them. And that's what this book's main purpose is, is that God comes into the lives of the needy and not only does he take care of them, not only does he provide them life in the midst of death, not only does he provide them blessing in the midst of famine, but he uses them to be a blessing to other people as well. And and I, you can't miss that part. This story is so cool because God is blessing them, and they're, and God is using them to be a blessing to other people. And to truly be blessed by God is not just to receive blessings But to be a blessing to other people. Not because you're all that and incredibly gifted and have a lot to offer and I'm not saying you don't but but because God does an amazing thing with you despite that and uses you. And so this is really the main purpose of the book that God cares about them. And the word that really gets emphasized here is the word chesed. And chesed and uh, we talked about this in the book of Genesis. But chesed is a Hebrew word that basically means it's translated all different kinds of ways, depending on what translation you're using, and what part of the Bible it's used, different contexts. But the, the main idea is this loving kindness. It's where we get the idea of charity, where you are loving and kind to people who maybe don't necessarily deserve it and people who, will, are, who are incapable of Or will never be able, um, will ever want to return the love back to you, and and that's really the main idea of charity. I know we use charity in a tax IRS write off kind of a way, or in a church category ministry kind of a way, and I'm not knocking those, but we often think of charity as just giving money to people. But the main idea of charity is is really truly you're loving people who will never or are unable of loving you back, or you don't think that they ever will possibly. And so charity can be the, the black sheep in your family. Charity can be the person who is emotionally beaten down and emotionally wounded so badly that they have nothing to offer you back, and yet they're incredibly financially well-off and, and incredibly politically powerful. Charity can be any kind of a love where you're not doing this to get anything in return, and they may never give anything back to return, and yet you still do it. And that's where we get the word chesed, that loving kindness, being kind and loving. And that's also where we get the idea of agape, that unconditional love. But I think charity is a much more powerful word than just unconditional. Unconditional seems so much more um, legal then charity feels more practical and more concrete. And unconditional feels more abstract. And so this word hesed is here. The word hesed shows up two hundred and seventy-five four times in the entire Bible. And what is interesting is, if you remember from the Genesis study, you can't find this concept in any other writing in the ancient world. The concept of charity, the concept of agape, the concept of unconditional love, the concept of unmerited love is not found in any other culture in any other document in the entire ancient world. In fact, this concept doesn't even really begin to show up in the world until after the revolution of Christianity. And after it begins, I mean, you have to understand something. Like, the idea of Greenpeace and Peace Corps and and, and all these organizations and though they're not godly and they're not rooted in a Christian uh, um mission, they are rooted in a biblical Christian concept that has subconsciously changed the way that people think in this culture. Even if they reject Christ and Christianity, America has been seriously subconsciously and socially affected by the biblical Judeo Christian concepts of morality. And we value those things because Christianity did change the world. Pre-Christ, I mean, if you think people are unloving and selfish now, that idea of chesed did not really exist in most people's concepts in the ancient world. And yet, in the midst of the judges, where everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, in the midst of a greater world that doesn't really have this concept of charity you have this shiny example among these three people in an insignificant village, so to speak. And the word hesed shows up three times in the beginning, three times in the middle, and three times in the end. And that doesn't feel like a lot of times in a book that is primarily focused on hesed, but the fact that it's so structured emphasizes it even more than just constantly repeating the word over all the time. Sometimes repetition becomes so familiar that you don't notice it anymore. But when things are rare and structured in such a way that they kind of pop out in the rarity, then it kind of emphasizes it more than the constant repetition. That's how God uses the word chesed here of this loving kindness. And what's so cool about this is what you're going to find out is that everybody is looking out for everybody among these three people. And what's so cool is that they don't have to look out for themselves. When everybody is really, truly demonstrating chesed and looking out for everybody else, you don't really have to be selfish anymore. Because in fact, in some ways, and I don't mean this literally, but I just have no other way to say it. It's actually selfish to be selfless. (laughs) Because... If you're looking out for yourself and yourself only, you are a limited person and you're one person. But if you're truly looking out for everybody else and everybody else is looking out for you, then there's more people who have way more talents all put together and more skills and more connections and more resources to look out for you than just you all by yourself. And so this is the way that God intended it. Selflessness is actually very practical. I mean, I heard a lot of people, even Christians, say, well, selflessness selflessness is not practical because it costs you so much and you have to make sacrifices you do but it is practical because imagine living in a community where everybody's doing that and how much better we would actually function emotionally socially mentally economically in so many different ways and so that's what you have here ruth is not looking out for herself she's looking out for friends and Boaz is not looking out for himself but he's looking out for them and in the end everybody's backs are covered And that's really what you have here is not just three people who are demonstrating incredible acts of chesed, but because three people have come together doing this, they've created a community. And that community becomes powerful, it becomes vibrant, it becomes life and joy to the fullest, which is exactly what Christ said that he came to give us. And he prayed for unity and community. And not only that, what you're going to see when we get to the Act 2, Chapter 2, is that that begins to affect the greater community that they live in as well. We don't give the stories of everybody else in the village, but there is a sense that you have this idea that the village has been affected by these people. And it's, it's changing the way that they're doing things as well. There are two major themes that are developed throughout this book. And the one comes from the purpose, <laughs> and that is Yahweh's concern about the needy people. And this one is very obvious. This one's not hidden. When you see people are suffering and it's so obvious and yet God's taken care of them, that theme becomes very dominant. And the second major theme is Yahweh rewards those who are faithful. And this is a real key point. And I think it becomes more powerful in the contrast of judges. And judges when they're reaping so many consequences because they are not faithful. And they're doing what is right in their own eyes. The blessings that God rewards Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi because of their faithfulness stick out even more. And this is what we call foil, where you put a good person next to a bad person so that that good person stands out even more. If a good person is just all by themselves, they don't look as good as when they're standing next to somebody who's really bad. Or vice versa, if you want to emphasize the bad person. You put them next to a good person, they look even worse. And so the, the book of Ruth becomes the foil to the Judges, or Judges becomes the foil to Ruth, where this the beauty of faithfulness and reward stands out even more after you just came out of the darkness of Judges. In the traditional Hebrew Bible, Ruth is placed with the prophets. It's not placed in the history. But I feel like they missed something by taking it out of the chronology I mean, when you go straight out of Judges into Samuel, I don't think you get the beauty of how amazing Ruth is when it's in the midst of the prophets. There is something to coming out of Judges and going to Ruth. You need to remember about this book, too, is culturally speaking, these people are nobodies. They're insignificant. They have never amounted to anything, and they will never show up in any kind of record of any kind of sort, and this village is a blip on the radar. And yet, God did not see them as insignificant and chose to immortalize them in his word that has been more prolonged than any other writing in the history of mankind. And that says something about how God feels about what we think as the culturally insignificant and the nobodies.